From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm speaking about skull-based surgery techniques with an ear, nose, and throat doctor who's relatively new to Upstate, Dr. Mitchell Gore, an assistant professor of otolaryngology and communication sciences is here. Welcome, Dr. Gore. Thanks for having me. Here. So first, can you explain what skull-based surgery is? So skull-based surgery essentially is surgery that deals with the base of the brain. Um, and there's lateral skull-based surgery that primarily deals with uh, issues with the uh, temporal lobe or the temporal bone. Uh, and that's the, above the ear? Exactly. The ear? Okay. Exactly, above the ear. Uh, and there are specific surgeons who have specific skill sets in that area. Uh, and then there's the anterior skull base, which is the area below the frontal bone and the ethmoid bones in the middle of the uh, skull, kind of between the eyes. Uh, and so a lot of that is done endoscopically, and so that's kind of my area of expertise. Wow. S- specialization. Exactly. You're very, yeah. very specialized. Okay. Um, and then there's lots of openings in the base of the skull for... Exactly. For primarily for the cranial nerves, so the nerves that control the sense of smell, vision, uh, movement of the tongue, um, sensation to the face, things like that, and also uh, several uh, blood vessels such as the carotid arteries and things like that all enter and exit uh, through the uh, the base of the skull. And so that's why that t- type of surgery is kind of uh, specialized. Okay. Now you mentioned endoscopy. Mm-hmm. That, that you work at. Is some of the skull-based surgery done as an open surgery and then some of it is closed or endoscopic? Exactly. So probably the biggest advance in uh, skull-based surgery kind of in the last 10 to 15 years has been that uh, endoscopes uh, have become much more advanced. Um, camera and video technology has become much more advanced. And so people in different areas, uh, University of Pittsburgh was one big area that was kind of instrumental in developing these things. Um, And people began to develop techniques for accessing and operating on uh, the base of the skull through the nose, so through a natural orifice. And so what people found over time is that for a lot of this type of surgery, that the recovery times after surgery, the visualization, um, things like that, uh, were much better in some cases than doing the surgery open through an incision in the face. And so what people found that as uh, technology uh, for visualization and uh, endoscopes advanced, that the uh, ability to access different areas of the brain, the ability to remove certain tumors, fix certain problems at the base of the skull uh, advanced as well. And so that's part of why this Uh, anterior skull base area has been such a hot area in uh, ear, nose, and throat surgery in the last 10 to 15 years. Well, tell me how you got involved in this. Um, Where did you go to medical school? Uh, So I did my medical school and my residency at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And did you decide during that time that you wanted to go into um, ear, nose, and throat? Uh, Exactly. So I, I knew I wanted to go into ear, nose, and throat surgery. Um, but when I started residency, I wasn't as familiar with skull-based surgery and sinus surgery and things like that. And I was lucky enough when I was at Chapel Hill to work with um, three, um, you know, really prominent, really talented uh, sinus and skull-based surgeons, Dr. Zanation, Dr. Senior, and Dr. Ebert. And the great thing about those three individuals is they all trained in completely different places. So they're all sinus surgeons, all skull-based surgeons, but they all trained with completely different people. And the great thing about working with them 
is I had three completely different perspectives on sinus surgery and anterior skull-based surgery. And I also did my fellowship with those three individuals. And so when I finished my fellowship, I felt really well-trained and really inspired uh, to go out and be able to do anterior skull-based surgery myself. And, you know, those three individuals uh, were also the people who got me really interested in sinus surgery and anterior skull-based surgery. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where you, you know, hear them talk and see the surgery, operate with them, and you just kind of know, you know, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, this is for me. And so that was really how I got interested in sinus surgery and skull-based surgery. Well, interesting. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Mitchell Gore, an assistant professor of otolaryngology and communication sciences at Upstate. So... Talk to me about why a person might need skull-based surgery. What are some of the things, types of patients that you see and, and what you do? So uh, the common indications for endoscopic sinus surgery, endoscopic skull-based surgery, are tumors in the nose. And so those can be benign tumors, um, uh, like inverted papillomas or things like that. Or even uh, really severe sinus disease can sometimes impact the skull base. Uh, malignant tumors such as, uh, you know, squamous cell cancers or uh, esthesioneuroblastomas, which is a fairly uncommon tumor that comes from the nerve responsible for the sense of smell. Are they, um, and these are cancers or tumors that grow later in life, so it's more adult patients or? It depends. The, the last two are primarily tumors that affect uh, younger adults, uh, sometimes even older adults as well. Um, and then uh, one of the more common in, uh, indications for skull-based surgery is uh, leakage of brain fluid or cerebrospinal fluid leaks uh, from the uh, base of the skull as well. What causes that? So it's interesting. They can come from different things. They can come from congenital problems. So there are uh, some young patients, some even adults, who for whatever reason develop a dehiscence or a, a weakening in the base of the skull. And so you can actually get a outpouching of the lining of the brain or even sometimes actual brain tissue, and that can leak cerebrospinal fluid. Uh, you can also get it from trauma. We see that commonly when people are in car accidents or uh, altercations. They can get injuries to the base of the skull. And then sometimes it can come from other surgeries. So sometimes if people are having sinus surgery or some sort of other surgery, uh, the base of the brain can inadvertently get injured. Uh, and so that can uh, require repair. Wow, interesting. Um, it sounds like some of the work might overlap with neurosurgery. Exactly. When you talk, it does. Uh, and okay. so uh, at a lot of institutions, the neurosurgeons and the ear, nose, and th throat surgeons will work collaboratively uh, to uh, do this kind of anterior skull-based work. And so, for instance, if there's a large tumor that is at the base of the brain, but it partially uh, intrudes into the brain, uh, you'll work together with the neurosurgeons, sometimes completely endoscopically, sometimes part of it will be open, sometimes uh, part of it will be endoscopically, uh, and work with the neurosurgeons to remove the tumor, or if there's a, a CSF leak, you can work with the neurosurgeons to re repair the CSF leak. And the nice thing about that is it combines the expertise the neurosurgeons have with the skull base and the brain sure. with the expertise the ear, nose, and throat surgeons have with the skull base and the sinuses. Uh, to really give the patient the best of both worlds uh, uh, with what they need. 
are most of these situations, like with tumor removal, is it mostly um, something that's planned or does it come up as an emergency sometimes? Typically with tumor removal, patients will present with some sort of symptoms such as uh, nasal obstruction, sometimes nosebleeds, things like that. Headaches are common. Uh, and uh, when they get their work up, a lot of times either examining the nose with the endoscope uh, or getting imaging, like with a CT scan or an MRI, will reveal a tumor. And so typically those cases, the repair is planned. Occasionally, uh, patients in, uh, you know, like a car wreck or something like that might present with a cerebrospinal fluid leak or something like that. So that might be kind of an emergency. But typically, uh, these cases are planned out very carefully in advance. And the uh, the surgical plan and the imaging is uh, planned out very carefully. When we say tumors in the nose, we're talking about tumors. I mean, patients wouldn't necessarily see this tumor. It's a tumor that's deeper, right? They wouldn't be able to see it or necessarily feel it. Exactly. And so uh, the symptoms of some of these nasal or skull-based tumors can overlap a lot with uh, innocuous other conditions. So some patients with Cerebrospinal fluid drainage might also have symptoms that are commonly seen in, you know, just allergies or things like that. Uh, you know, sometimes nosebleeds or just stuffiness in the nose can be, you know, pretty innocuous symptoms. And so uh, an issue that is sometimes a lot of these tumors are found relatively late because the symptoms can overlap, overlap a lot with other conditions and patients may not uh, be aware uh, that it's uh, indicative of something more serious. Right. I can see someone going and just dealing with their sinuses all summer thinking it's been a bad year for allergies. Exactly. And ignoring. Okay, so um, once they find their way to an ENT specialist such as you, what do you tell patients about in terms of what they're looking at if they need to undergo a surgery like this? What are some of the risks and uh how does it go? Is it a one-day surgery? or? Um, well, it depends. In most cases, we will see the patient, um, you know, uh, look in their nose with the endoscope, uh, get some imaging, uh, develop a plan. We'll um, uh, take a biopsy if, if needed uh, and develop a surgical plan. Uh, typically, these types of surgeries are uh, done in one day. Um, often, the patients will have to stay uh, in the hospital at least overnight or possibly several days. Uh, in many cases, the patients may have some packing in the nose, and that's to help with healing and uh, help prevent bleeding. And so uh, typically the packing will stay in a week, sometimes two weeks, to help things heal. Uh, generally, the nice thing about uh, doing uh, these surgeries endoscopically is the recovery is typically very similar to the recovery from you know, typical sinus surgery. And so that's one of the nice things is that uh, patients uh, have a post-operative course that's closer to um, kind of uh, routine sinus surgery. Uh, and uh, that's one of the nice things about the advances with the endoscopes and endoscopic techniques. Uh, are they out of work for a while after? or? Yeah, especially if patients have a cerebrospinal fluid leak, you know, involved in the tumor, or if the surgery is purely to fix a cerebrospinal fluid leak, Generally, we'll have patients take it very easy for uh, four to six weeks to allow the skull base to heal so that they're not straining and increasing the uh, fluid pressure around their brain. Uh, so we will generally have patients take some time off of work and take it easy for several weeks. 
Are there um, risks to the procedure that patients have to weigh and consider beforehand? Sure. So some of the risks of uh, skull-based surgery and sinus surgery are, are similar to other surgeries. You know, the risks of bleeding, the risks mm-hmm. of anesthesia, complications. Uh, some of the risks inherent to skull-based surgery are risks of nerve injury, so muscle weakness or um, uh, facial weakness, facial numbness, things like that. Uh, and the risk of cerebrospinal fluid leak is, is one of the risks, but luckily uh, there are many techniques for fixing those leaks, and so uh, that's one of the risks that's uh, become uh, lower and lower as the uh, years have progressed. As people do it more and get more expertise exactly. from it. Okay. Um, and then some of the tumors are cancerous, is mm-hmm. that correct? So uh, are they treated exclusively with surgery, or does a patient face more therapy after the so removal? That's a, that's a good question. So for many of the tumors, uh, after patients have surgery, uh, the goal, of course, being to remove the entire tumor with you know negative margins around the tumor, uh, often we'll also recommend the patient have radiation to the area, and in some cases, uh, possibly also chemotherapy as well. Uh, but uh, many of the tumors do uh, do better uh, with a lower recurrence rate with radiation after surgery. So you have to you collaborate with oncologists in those situations. I exactly, so. the radiation and mm-hmm. medical oncologists. Well, interesting. It's uh, it's nice to know that you're here and offering this service. Yeah. Here at Upstate. Thank you for talking with me. My guest has been Dr. Mitchell Gore from Otolaryngology and Communication Sciences. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.